Not sure who picked Daniel, but it's a great, great lesson because we are Daniel. We are in the same situation he's in. We have the same resources he has, and we have a lot of inspiration to be found from this story. 605 B.C., uh, the world power before this was the Assyrians. They were mighty and ferocious and violent and cruel, but they took the northern tribes out, and the northern tribes are gone. Those ten tribes are, are history. But the Babylonians then come over. They came, over, came upon the scene. They took over for the Assyrians, and they start being a source of conflict for God's people. 605 BC, they come into Judah and they take over. They let Judah have their king, but he's a puppet king. He's got to pay taxes to the Babylonians. He's got to do what the Babylonians say, and if they don't, the Babylonians will come in and wipe them out, which they eventually did, as you know. But the first thing they do when they come into a new kingdom, when they, they conquer a new kingdom, is what they did in Daniel chapter 1. If you'll join me, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. I want you to remember that. The Lord gave Judah into Babylonian hands. Just remember that. With some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, placed the vessels in the treasury of his God, took God's stuff, put it in his own museum as if he had conquered it. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz's chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, the royal family of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand before the king's palace. These were smart, good-looking, unblemished people. How many of you would have been taken if you were 14 then? Oh, yeah, Randy, sure thing. Right, okay. The king assigned them a daily portion, but the, the point is that, that they were competent to stand the king's palace and teach them the literature. They took the cream of the crop from Judah, and they took them off to Babylon to Babylonize them. They taught them, you know, Babel.com. They did all that stuff, teach them the language, teach them the literature. They took off the best and the brightest of Judah into Babylonian captivity. Now, about Daniel in this thing. 605, he's 14 or 15 years old. 15 years old, he's uprooted from his home. He's taken off into Babylon. The last thing dated in Daniel's visions is the early years of Cyrus in 535, which means... All 70 years of captivity, Daniel is there watching it happen. 15 years he lived in his homeland of Judah. The next 70 years he lived in captivity. And he was faithful the whole time. By the time he's in the lion's den, he did not look like this. He looked more like Bill Harris. He was 85 years old in the lion's den. He'd lived a long time, y'all. He'd lived a long time away from his homeland, and yet he still longed for home. He still acted according to the ethics of home. He still had all the beliefs of home. That was no easy thing. And so he is a man who's away from home, living in a land where they're trying to make him feel at home somewhere else. Next screen. This is Daniel. Next, go on the next one. He was away from where he belonged, living in a world that was trying to make him part of it. 
And this is why this book is relevant to you. You are not home. You're not home. You're not where you're supposed to be. You long to be there. You're in a foreign land. You are in exile. You are in captivity. You are in a world trying to make you feel at home here. It's trying to shape you into its image. And all the while, you've got to live for home. Is that true? Is this true? You came up that hill and you got ready this morning because you're reminding yourself on the first day of the week as you live out the rest of the week, this ain't my home. This is not where I belong. I've got to live faithful to the homeland even as I'm in exile. That's why Daniel is relevant. There's great stories in this book and our kids are going to, I should say there's great stories in the first six chapters of this book. That's where we're going to spend all our time in VBS. Some of you don't even realize there's a 7 through 12, and it's really weird. We don't do VBS on that because there's no VeggieTale video on the last six chapters of the book. It just would be too hard to do it. But here's our chore for the morning. You ready? Our chore is how did Daniel stay faithful to home when he lived four times as long away from it? How did he do it? The world is doing its best to make him feel a part of it. And all he's got is 15 years of experience. I'm going to pause right here and I'm going to say something. Charlotte over here, she's over children's ministry. She's lived at the church building the last two weeks. Lived here for this VBS. But it's more than that. She makes sure there's teachers in that classroom back there. Every time, you don't have to worry about it. They're going to be there. She's got to worry about it. And she does other things. And I got to tell you something. Our children's ministry is not a cute little accessory to church stuff. It is essential to who we are as a church. Because you've got 15 years. Daniel had 15 years to get enough maturity to give him the strength to last 70 years away from home. He didn't have Bible class anymore. His Bible classes were all the first 15 years of his life, and the rest of his life had to be lived without it, being faithful to the truth of it. We've got 15 years to prepare our young people to live out their lives in an exile world. This is not a cute little program we've got. This is an essential part of a church, what Charlotte does. Michael, it's not just leading your kids on trips. Our interns are not just learning how to, you know, go along on trips. They're doing things to root our kids in their faith so that when they leave here and go out into a world of exile, they can stay faithful. Daniel lived faithful all his life based on the foundation of the first 15. You get this, right? Am I stressing this enough for you? Church, we need to use every Sunday and every Wednesday night to ground our young people as if their life depends on it because it does. Because it does. And for Daniel, that's true. And it's so much even more important than this. Consider this. Daniel had 15 years in his home before he lived the rest of it outside of it. You've never been home. You've never been there. You've never been to the land you want to be at. You've never lived with God in close proximity like that. And yet we've got to nurture a hunger for that and a desire for that that's strong enough to resist everything the world's trying to do to get you to feel at home here. What an amazing task. And I want to know how did Daniel do it because I want to know how we can do it. 
We have got to figure out how to do this because the world is beating the church up like crazy. It's coming in. It's attacking us. We're going out to it. We're becoming more worldly than we're making the world more holy. And it's the hardest thing in the world. And we're sending our kids out there and we're finding our kids struggling. And how are they going to navigate? We're going to have to study Daniel for that. Now, there's a lot in this book that you got to know is important. The most fundamental thing is that God's behind all this. That deportation where they come in and the Babylonians overtake God's people and take them away from home, it says God was behind that. That's not Nebuchadnezzar. That's not Babylon. That's God. God's doing that. Don't you forget that because you're going to lose sight of that. You're going to think, where's God in all this? Oh, he's around. Trust me, he's around. He's the one that allows Daniel to learn their literature and their language so quickly. It says that in chapter 1. It says he's the one that allows them to interpret dreams. He's the one who shuts the mouths of lions. He's the one who makes them fireproof. He's the one behind everything in this book. So don't lose sight of that. Don't get so enamored with Daniel that you forget it's God back there. God's the one. In fact, the greatest scene, the greatest scene to me, or at least the greatest words in this story, do you remember Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't want you just to interpret my dream. I want you to tell me what my dream was. And their wise men, he has a whole cabinet of wise men, come up to to Nebuchadnezzar and say, Nebuchadnezzar, what you're asking for is something only a God can do, and there's no God living here. I beg your pardon. There is a God living here. His name is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He will interpret this dream through Daniel, and he'll tell you, listen, God is here in this church building this morning. We're meeting with him, but he's also there in your house on Wednesday. He's also there wherever you go throughout this week at your workplace, no matter where you go out and eat, no matter what you go out to do anything, your God is with you because there's never a place our God is not, and that's what he's wanting them to know in Babylon. You think I'm not in captivity? You think that I'm only in Jerusalem and I'm not there in captivity? What are you, crazy? I'm the God of the universe. Don't you forget that. And we want to know, how can we nurture a homesickness and a desire for this God that allows us to be rooted enough to resist the world that's trying to lull us into loving this place? This world will be welcoming. This world wants to woo you. It wants to make you part of it. It wants to make you feel comfortable here. It makes you want to, it makes you, they, they want to make you unpack your bags and put them in a dresser and, and buy a house and live here and call them home. The world wants to do that to you. And the way it did that with Daniel is a number of ways. Number one, it made them learn the language. But the way they made them learn the language, they had to study their literature to learn the language. Do you know what their literature was? They had their own creation story called the Enuma Elish. And they made Daniel learn the Enuma Elish, how the world was created, all these gods fighting with each other, and it created everything. But Daniel, in his first 15 years, he read Genesis 1 and 2. God is the one who made the world. The, the, the Babylonians are saying, here, learn our language, and this is how the world came. They have an epic of Gilgamesh, which is their flood story. They have a different version of it, and they're teaching Daniel through that and through their literature trying to get to Daniel's brain, not just to learn the Akkadian language, but also to adopt their way of thinking and how the world works. That's what they're trying to do, and Daniel was able to. And by the way, I want to say to young people, do the same thing. I want you to learn their evolution that's godless. I want you to learn the evolutionary theory. Don't fight your schools. Learn it. But when you come here, we'll tell you the truth. 
And we tell you the truth, I want you to hang on to that truth with every bit of your conviction. And you don't have to fight and say, why do we have to teach it? No, let them teach that in school, but keep in your head the truth. Keep in your head the truth. This world is here because God put it there. Keep the truth. They learned the language. They made Daniel a eunuch. That's harsh. They made him a eunuch. And then they changed his name. Daniel means God is my judge. Talking about Yahweh is my judge. And, and, and now they're going to change his name to Belteshazzar, which means something about their gods. And so even when they call him by name, they're calling their gods out. And they, he lets them change their name. And what choice does he have? He doesn't have any power to do anything. But, and this is the first point we're going to make tonight, to this morning, and that's this. The one main way... Daniel was able to navigate, be homesick even in a foreign land was he had the discernment to draw the line. There is a line that has to be drawn between us and the world somewhere. A lot of what the world does is fine. It's neutral. There's no, there's no reason not to worry, not to mess with. Just go along with the flow. You can go with the flow a lot. There's a lot of things the world does that's just fine. Go ahead and participate. But y'all, we are people of God, and there's a line that has to be drawn sometimes. And Daniel says, you know what? I'll do all this other stuff. Either I can't control or, or I can't do anything about or it doesn't matter to me, but there are some things that do. And so in chapter 1, he says, I will not eat your food. That just seems like a weird thing to me. Food is the big hang-up. But it was a kind of big deal for Jews, wasn't it? And so he says, I'm not going to eat the food. Now, the guy who's over them, his job from the Babylonians was prepare these people to be plump. Wise men were plump and nice and jolly. I like that. They're nice and jolly. And so they were plump and healthy looking, and they were smart. And, they, and he says to them, I'm afraid if you don't eat the king's food, you won't be as plump as everybody else. And so Daniel says, I'll tell you what, let's do a 10-day test. You feed us only vegetables and water. Uh, you feed everybody else the same, and you see at the end of 10 days if we don't look plumper than the rest. Now, that is crazy, isn't it? You ever heard of the Mediterranean diet? It's supposed to be healthier, trim you down some. Well, that's what Daniel did, and yet he got fatter than everybody. How do you explain that? If you ate only vegetables and water all the time, and at the end of uh, 10 days you were fatter, wouldn't you be discouraged? That is perfect uh, illustration in Daniel chapter 1 of this fact. God's behind all this. And he drew a line in the sand, I won't do this. My question for you is, do you have discernment to know when you can go along with the world and when you can't? Maybe you've got friendships. You've got friendships with people. Sometimes this line is between right and wrong, and that's fairly easy. But most of the time, this line is between something that's just okay, but you've let it go too far. You have friends who are of the world, and that's fine. You need to influence people of the world. But if those friendships, in those friendships, you find yourself being more unholy than you are helping them to become holy, you've got to draw a line. And if those sports that you're participating in, fine, that's great. Go and participate. But if you notice after going after that weekend tournament for the 15th weekend in a row that your family is getting some spiritual weakness showing and you don't have the ability to navigate all that spiritually and you find that doing that neutral thing hurts the most essential thing to your faith, draw a line. Draw a line. May God give us the wisdom and the discernment to know when we have to draw a line and say, I can't do this. 
and it's not always the same for everybody. That's one thing Daniel did. A second thing Daniel did was he constantly nurtured a, a life of uh, prayer, constant contact with God. Over and over and over in this book, he's talking to God. When he needs to have an interpretation for a dream to save all the wise men's life, he looks at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, guys, we need to pray. And then he prays, and God immediately gives him the dream and the interpretation. And before he goes to tell Nebuchadnezzar what that is to save everybody's life, he first of all pauses and thanks God and praises him for giving him an answer. So when he needs help, when he's in crisis, he prays. When he's grateful, he prays. When he's so alarmed, he loses his color in chapter 9. He prays. When he needs to repent or confess or seek wisdom, he prays. He constantly is phoning home where he longs to be. Prayer is this ability to make contact with the other world you're headed toward. You can call home any time you want to. And we often don't. What happens when you fail to call home for a long time? You forget where home is. Your homesickness weakens. If you don't call home, your mom's going to get mad. Your dad's going to get mad. What, you've forgotten about us? You just kind of live. And I, I get that. And I, I, I understand that. But what happens when God is where we most long to be and where we long to arrive at one day, but we never take the time to call him today. We don't take the time to call into that world and nurture that homesickness. God, I want to be with you. You're where I want to be. That's where I long to be, and I want to nurture and feed my homesickness because if I don't call home, I'll forget where home is, and I'll lose my place there. It was so strong in Daniel that the only way that these people who hated him could attack him was to pass a law that pertained to his faith. There was no weakness in Daniel anywhere, and so they decided we've got to create a law that puts conflict between him and his faithfulness. It's interesting how the world does this. The world will look at the Christian faith and say, what are your most prized doctrines? We want to attack it. We want to change the definition of marriage. We want to change the definition of marriage. What are you Christians going to do about that? And a lot of that, we can't do anything at all. But Daniel, the law they passed was for the next, this is stupid, for the next 30 days, no one can pray to any god other than the king. Totally ridiculous law, but it created conflict between Daniel and his faithfulness. And what was the first thing Daniel did the moment this law passed? He goes into his room, opens the door, and prays toward Jerusalem, which he had done for three day, times a day for his entire life. He continued praying. There is this parable Jesus tells of this woman who needs justice, and she keeps going to a judge over and over and over again. And the parable's point is, you need to keep praying. But at the end, at the end of the parable, there's this weird line that seems so totally out of place in Luke chapter 18. After he tells that story, persevere in prayer, don't ever give up, keep praying, keep calling God. It says this, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man finally does return, will anybody still be faithful? It's at the end of this parable about persistent prayer. What is he saying? 
The only people who will have faith when Jesus comes are the ones who continually pray in the meantime. Prayer is the way to keep your faith strong. It nurtures homesickness and it keeps you reminding that this world is not my home. We can sing the song all we want to and we can, like Abraham, call ourselves aliens all we want to. But living it out is a different challenge altogether. Pray for discernment to know where to draw the line. Keep in contact with God. When, when you can't sleep at night, instead of watching that stupid TV, pray. When you find yourself not wanting to do what God has called you to, learn to pray until you have resigned your will to his. And that may take a long time. Pray. The third thing he did. Constantly gave God glory. Every time God blessed his life, he gave God the credit for it to whoever was around. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? I want you to tell me the dream, and I want you to interpret it for me. And, and Daniel comes forward. He said, can you interpret it? Well, I can, but only because the God who is the revealer of dreams gave it to me. And I'm going to tell you. And when he told him, he said, God's the one who told me. And Nebuchadnezzar gives praise to the God of heaven. Because Daniel told him where the interpretation come from. It, I didn't read the entrails of frogs and I didn't read, you know, saucers of coffee. I just prayed to my God. He does the same thing with Belshazzar. He does the same thing with Darius in chapter 6. He just bragged on God. And here's the thing I think that we need to do more. I don't do this well and I, I bet some of us don't. You know that every good thing that comes to you is somehow connected to God. Do you know that, right? Everybody know that? I need a nod. Does everybody know that every good thing is somehow connected to God? We need to verbalize that better. We need to say it more. We need to brag on God when he does things. When people hear us who've been so blessed bragging on God, it helps them to know that we know where our home is and where every credit goes. It helps us to know that. It helps them to know that. And it nurtures in them this ability to marvel at him. Nebuchadnezzar never became a believer. Neither did Belshazzar. Neither did Darius. But they had moments when they marveled at God because of the way Daniel bragged on him. We need to do the same. One last thing Daniel did, and that is he always told the truth. He told God's word faithfully, even when it had a rough edge to it. So he's standing before Nebuchadnezzar, describing the statue, the head of gold, which is Nebuchadnezzar himself. And then he says, by the way, you know, you're the head of gold, and God gave you the position. And by the way, God's going to take it away from you and give it to somebody else. Nebuchadnezzar didn't mind. That's exactly what the interpretation was. But I don't know that I'd want to say it like that. The handwriting on the wall. Or better yet, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that says, you know, because you think you're all that, God's going to drive you to eat the grass like a cow. He just comes out and says, You've been too, you're too big for your britches, Nebuchadnezzar. You need to humble yourself. And if you don't, you'll be driven out to eat like wild animals. And that's what he tells him. When people want to know the truth from you, when people want to know what you think or what you believe about certain things in the world, we need to stand upon what God says no matter what. Don't water it down and don't try to be so conscious of people's feelings that you absolutely compromise the truth of God. Proclaim exactly what he says. Do it kindly. Do it respectfully. But do it right. Stand on what God says. Daniel constantly does, and because he does, he knows the truth and he stands on it. 
We know from Daniel's visions that things were going to get a whole lot worse. Daniel was able to be faithful in captivity with the Babylonians, but things were going to get really bad. And at the end, Daniel chapter 12, he has this to say to us, to them. At that time, there's going to arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people. There will be a time of trouble such as never has been seen since since we were a nation until that time. There's going to... There's coming a time that's the worst that we've ever experienced. This is going to get worse before it gets better, Daniel says. And by the way, can I tell you, that's true for you too. This world is going to get worse before it gets better. But, he says, at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The best thing you can do, given what happens in our world, is to stay faithful to the sovereign who's in charge of everything. Just be faithful. Draw the line. Be faithful to God. Pray to him constantly brag on him when you have the chance and be faithful to his word both in your life and in your proclamation and answers be faithful to home until you get home nurture homesickness in yourself as Daniel did one of the neat verses of chapter one Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon seem to have all the power over Daniel But it says the last verse of Daniel chapter 1, and Daniel was there until the early years of Cyrus. Nebuchadnezzar was going to go. Belshazzar was going to go. Babylon was going to go. And Daniel was still there. World powers will come and go. The United States, if God gives time to the world, will come and go. Other word powers will rise up. But the best thing to do for all the faithful who long to get home one day is just stay true to God no matter who is supposedly in charge of the world. And when that time comes, you'll say it was worth it. Daniel lived in captivity for a long time and probably died there. We are living in captivity for a long time, and we'll probably, unless the Lord comes back, die here. But there'll come a time when we'll rise from the grave and we'll be given the life of home that we're constantly reading about in Scripture and we need to nurture in ourselves. And I'm telling you, whatever it takes to have that at the end is worth it in the meantime. Nurture your homesickness Be a child who longs for home more than anything else. And whatever it takes to navigate through a world of temptation, do it. It will be worth it when you get there. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, maybe you've never made heaven your place of citizenship. You've never named Jesus Lord of your life. And this morning you had that opportunity to hear us to hear you confess Jesus as Lord and be immersed or maybe you've been that way you've done that but you have suddenly put your roots down in this world and you've become too attached to it and you need the prayers and the help of this church to help you uproot from that and plant yourself firmly at home whatever may be your spiritual need this morning make it known as we stand and as we sing